Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. We are in the midst of our Series 7. We're in the midst of our Series 7. Can everyone say 7? Awesome. And uh, this series is all about how to have an unwavering faith in an uncertain time. Right? Who would, who would describe 2020 as we've gone through it as a little bit of an uncertain time, you know? That might be putting it quite kindly, but we're looking at how to have an unwavering faith. Because reality is, is that even though the world may be in an uncertain time, God never changes. And God never wavers. And so we want to look at how to have an unwavering faith. And so that's what we've been uh, discovering in this series so far. This is part four this morning. We've had three parts before this. I know, quick math. I am a genius at it. But four minus three, you know, all that sort of stuff. But uh, we've had three parts so far. The week one, uh, we looked at uh, the subject of a loving faith. And the way we've been discovering all about how to have an unwavering faith, sorry, I just jumped ahead, but is that we've been looking at the letters to seven churches found in Revelation. So in the, in the book of Revelation, uh, if you turn to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of your Bible, by the way, it's really easy to find. It's not like, you know, one of the ones where you try and have to flip through and continue to flip through and then go back to the beginning to see what page number it is and then go and find it. It's just the last book, so just head straight there, head straight to the last book. And there's seven letters found in the book of Revelation to seven churches. And these letters are actually Jesus writing, right? This is, they're written in red. So if you have a red letter Bible, that's an indication that Jesus is speaking to these churches. And that's what we've been looking at. And we've been looking at how these letters relate to faith. Everyone say faith. That we'll be looking at how they relate to faith. And so week number one, part number one, we looked at uh, the church of Ephesus. And we looked at how does that letter relate uh, to loving faith, right? So how to have a loving faith. And week two, we looked at uh, Smyrna. And uh, we looked at how to have a tested faith, how to operate in life with a tested faith. And in week three, we looked at uh, Pergamum, which was how to have a pure faith, and uh, if you miss out on any, any one of those, it's okay because we have a great podcast and we have a great app and you can go on and you can watch anyone and you can listen to any one of those and catch up when you can. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the fourth letter. And uh, this letter is addressed to a church called Thyatira or Thyatira, depending on what accent you have and where you come from. Thyatira. And so Thyatira is actually probably one of the smallest churches, but it's, uh, so, sorry, the smallest cities, but it's one of the longest letters. It's great. And uh, we're actually going to be looking at it in relation uh, to the subject of an honest faith. Can everyone say honest faith? Awesome. And so I wonder if you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to find ourselves in verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to read the whole letter, and then we're going to break it down and see what God is saying to Thyatira, but also what He's saying to us here today. Does that sound good? Awesome. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write this. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than what you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Ooh, that moment right there. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls, us, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she leads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her uh, immorality, but she is unwilling. 
So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one, he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold on to her teaching and have not leaned, uh, sorry, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any more any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give the one, uh, sorry, the, the one, the morning star, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the churches. Longest letter, done, dusted, tick. Now, on the, on the surface, that letter might seem a little bit harsh. Anyone else, anyone else with me on, on reading first part of that? You're like, man, this seems a little bit harsh. But if we were just to look at that letter without looking at the context of what Jesus is speaking into, we're not going to be able to actually receive what Jesus is trying to say to this church. And so in order to understand what he's saying, we've got to look into the historical context of Thyatira a little bit. Now, like, like I said before, Thyatira, out of the seven cities that we see in Revelation, was actually probably the least significant city. It was probably the smallest city, and it's gotten the longest letter, which is pretty cool. But what it was famous for, right, what it was famous for is its trade and manufacturing. It was actually famous for trade and manufacturing. In fact, one of the biggest uh, trades it was famous for was actually finding out how to dye material into the color purple. Right? And in Bible times, the color purple was a very rare color, right? Which means that often kings or wealthy people would wear the color purple because it was just so expensive to get hold of. And so Thyatira was actually the place where people dyed material into purple colors. And so that's where they received a lot of their wealth. And we actually get a glimpse of this in Acts 16, right? We see uh, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching uh, in a place called Philippi. And we see this person, Lydia, this woman, Lydia, comes and hears his preaching and receives Jesus, right? And this, this person, Lydia, she is actually from Thyatira. She is selling purple cloth. She is actually from Thyatira. That's her place where she was born. And so it's more than likely the fact that her receiving Jesus is how the early church in Thyatira started, that once she received Jesus, she went back and, and, and with the community and actually started up this church in Thyatira, right? And so that's the context of the manufacturing. But you need to understand the reason they were so good at manufacturing and the reason they were so good at trade is because they actually did it differently to other people. They actually did it differently to the people around them. And the reason why they were so good is because they had what they would call guilds or, or unions, Right, and so they would have their trade guilds or their trade unions, not too similar, not too different, sorry, to the ones that we have here today, but they are a little bit different, right? And so what you would do is that, let's say you would have all the teachers together and they would be in a guild. Let's say you had all the carpenters together and they would be in a, you know, that, that they would be in a guild together. And what they would do is they, that not only would they work in these guilds, but they would actually determine not only their income, but their social life and their spiritual life as well. So basically, these guilds, once you were part of them, it's like you took on every single part of this guild. And so what took place, the reason they were so good, because they had everyone on this unity focusing on the same thing. But reality is, all these guilds did not worship God. They had their own gods that they worshipped. They had their own idols that they worshipped, right? And so what would happen is that you would become a part of a guild, and then what would take place is that not only would you receive an income, not only would it determine your social life, who you would interact with outside of work, but it would also determine who you worshipped. 
It would also determine what you did and how you worshipped. And so they would have these feasts, right? Where as a guild, they would get together and they would worship specific gods over those guilds. And so that's how they would operate. And which means that in Thyatira, if you're a Christian, all of a sudden you're faced with a dilemma. Because if you choose to follow Jesus, all of a sudden you have to go, I'm deciding to follow Jesus even if it impacts my income. I'm deciding to follow Jesus even if it impacts my social standing. And that's what the Christians in Thyatira were facing. That's the context into which Jesus is speaking into. And so I want to break down this letter and point out a couple of things. Number one is this, is that at the beginning of the letter, as, as we see in all letters actually, but we see that Jesus reveals a characteristic of himself. Jesus reveals a characteristic of himself. He reveals part of his character to the church. Remember, it says he has eyes like blazing flames. That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. That sounds like a superhero moment. You know when the superhero lands and then like the, the camera's there and they look up and it's eyes of burning flames, right? And that may sound, you're like, whoa, that, that sounds intense. Well, well, essentially what it's saying is that I would ask you this, what do we have eyes for? We have eyes to see, right? And so what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, I just want to let you know that I see everything, that I see everything, that there's nothing I do not miss, that there's nothing that is hidden from me. And so when he says, I have eyes like burning flames, what he's saying is like, hey, nothing is hidden, nothing is too far. I see everything that goes on. And this is actually, you know, we see another times in the Bible, it says that his eyes are like doves, which are those moments where Jesus can come around and comfort you and, and give you a nice warm hug, you know? You know those moments where you feel God giving you like a nice warm hug almost and you feel that peace? Yeah, that's the, the, the peace, the dove moment, but this is burning flames, you know? And so you know it's a little bit of a different angle, but he's saying, hey, he sees everything and nothing is hidden from him. But then it says he has burnished bronze for feet. What do we have feet for? We have feet to move somewhere. It's going to be really hard to move with our feet, you know? And so we, uh, when it says burnished bronze, what it's saying is that there's no place he cannot go. It's saying that there's no place he cannot follow us. In other words, what it's saying in this whole little bit there with, hey, he's got eyes as burning flames and he's got burnished bronze as feet. He's saying, hey, nothing is hidden and I go everywhere. In other words, whatever you see and wherever you go is where I am too. And so he's there all the time. And this is actually in direct contrast to what we read in the Bible all the time when we read about uh, idols, false idols, and false gods that are introduced, right? Over and over again, we hear, hey, they have eyes, but they can't see. Hey, they have ears, but they can't hear. Hey, they have mouths, but they can't speak because they are not real, but we serve a living God. So not only is he saying, hey, there's nothing hidden and I can go everywhere. He's saying, hey, remember, I'm a living God and I'm real and I'm your king. That is what he's saying to the church of Thyatira at the beginning. So he reveals part of his character. But then he moves on and he starts actually commending the church. The next part of the letter is him commending the church. He actually says this. He goes, hey, I know what you've done. I know the good deeds that you've done. Your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance. And that what you are doing now is greater than what you were doing before. Who would love to be known for that? That would be awesome. <laughs> known for your love and your faithfulness and your service and your perseverance, and that what you're doing now is greater than what you did when you first started, that's the definition of success. That is awesome. I want that. And he's going, hey, well done. 
well done church, well done. And this is actually an outworking of what we learned in week one when Pastor Tony shared on a loving faith and that we should hold on to the good, right? This is Jesus going, hey church, hold on to the good. Look at where you were and look at where you're at now. Come on, this is good, well done. Your faithfulness, your perseverance, your love, your service, and your increase. See, Jesus is saying, hey guys, you're growing and you're getting better. See, the church of Thyatira was growing and expanding and they were getting better. And Jesus going, man, this is awesome. I celebrate with you. And that's his heart for us today. You know, Jesus' heart for you is to grow and to get better over time. He doesn't want you to settle. No, no, no. Come on. We say it all the time here. If we're not dead, we're not done because God has greater things in store for us. Come on. We, he, he wants us to continue to grow in Him. And we see the church of Thyatira are actually doing this, which is awesome. In 2 Peter uh, 3 verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, uh, uh, sorry, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come on, He desires us to grow and to continue to grow. And Jesus wants this church to grow. But in order to do so, He has to address a few things. You know that moment, right? Maybe, maybe you remember as a kid, maybe your parents having this moment with you, or maybe your boss has had this moment with you, or whoever it might be. But you know that moment where the but comes? You know the but, <laughs> or the however. You know that moment where your stomach drops a little bit? You're like, oh, they're butting you. You're like, oh man, this is great. And then it's like, however. And you're like, oh no, what's coming? That's this moment. Imagine the church of Thyatira being like, yeah, we're doing really well. And then they hear this word, nevertheless. You're like, oh no, <laughs> brace yourself. <laughs> All of a sudden, everyone gripped their chairs. <laughs> Nevertheless, this I hold against you. Jesus, at this point, switches from commending the church to correcting the church. Because here's the thing Jesus is so committed to their growth and their discipleship that he's not just going to tell them what they want to hear, he's going to tell them what they need to hear. As any good parent knows, you don't tell your kids what they want to hear, you tell them what they need to hear, right? You don't just tell them what they want, you actually have to tell them what they need to hear as teachers as well, right? Imagine if we had classrooms full of teachers that just told our kids from reception all the way through to year 12 what they wanted to hear and not what they needed to. It would be mayhem. It would be crazy. Our society is built on us actually understanding that we need to tell people what they need to hear in order for them to grow. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing to the church of Thyatira. He's going, hey, guys, I'm going to reveal part of myself to you so you can understand me better. I'm going to commend you for what you have done, but then also I'm going to correct you for where you're going wrong. Because you need to understand this, right? We see it in, uh, pardon me, we see it uh, in verse 20 to 21. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who, who calls herself a prophet. By, uh, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and, and, eat and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. In other words, Jesus is far too concerned with their discipleship to just tell them what they want to hear. He, want, he needs to tell them what they need to hear. Come on, if we want to grow, we've got to understand that God is going to tell us things that we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. We've got to understand as Christians, as Christ's followers, if we want to grow, because that's His heart and desire for us, right? To disciple us, to grow us, to make us bigger and better. We're going to have moments where He's going to come in and correct us, right? Because He actually wants us to improve. 
It's not because he just wants to, you know, point out things. It's actually because it has a purpose behind it, and that is to improve us and make us grow. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, all you're doing over here is great. All the service you've done, all the faith is great, but I need you to change this one thing. I need, maybe, maybe I could put it this way, right? Maybe you were like me growing up, right? When my parents asked me to tidy my room, for some reason, I interpreted that as do every other job possible besides tidy your room. Maybe parents can relate to it. It's like when you get asked to do that one thing, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, I'll get to the one thing, but I'm going to be really good and do the 10 other things that no one asked me to do first before anyone tells me to do the one thing. And Jesus is going, hey, all that is great, and I love all that. I love that you're doing that, but still, you need to address this. Because if you don't, it will hinder your growth. It will hinder your impact in the world. Jesus says, hey, Nevertheless, I hold this against you, that you tolerate that woman. Come on, whatever we tolerate is what we will get. We don't get what we want, we get what we tolerate. And so we got to ask, cool, what is Jesus saying that they're tolerating? It talks about Jezebel, then this prophet, and you're like, man, what is happening? I don't understand. Cool. What is Jesus actually saying that they're tolerating? I'm so glad you guys asked because I prepared an answer for you this morning, right? And so he says, hey, I hold this against you that you continue to tolerate. Hey, I'm correcting this. Hey, I want to remind you, this is the area that you have to work on in order to continue to increase, to continue to grow. And this is the one thing. And so what we see is that we see this name Jezebel pop up. And now maybe you know the name Jezebel from Kanye West's song, you know, close on Jezebel don't even stand a chance, you know, but you have no idea what it's about, right? Uh, and I'm here to give you context, so maybe you know, but either way, I'm going to give you some context, right? Jezebel is actually a reference to the Old Testament. Jezebel is actually a reference to the Old Testament. You can go and read about it in 1 Kings 16, all right? 1 Kings 16, if you want to go and check it out after the service. Um, but essentially, what it's referring to is that in that time, there was a king of Israel. His name was Ahab. Um, Ahab was the king of Israel, and he was God-appointed and God-anointed to lead God's people into all the promises that God had for him, right? And that was his role. That was his purpose. That was his duty. And so he was doing that. And then along came a queen, and her name was Jezebel. And all of a sudden, uh, the purpose of God got a little bit blurry as he started to look to Jezebel a little bit more. And King Ahab and King Jezebel got married. And King Jezebel, what you need to know about her is that she wasn't a follower of God or Yahweh. She was actually a follower of Baal, right? She was a follower of Baal. And that, what that means is that all of a sudden, in the one household, we have two different visions, otherwise known as division in the household. When you have two visions in something, it doesn't work because there's division happening, right? And so what we see take place is that King Ahab and, and, and Queen uh, Jezebel get married. And uh, the, the God-anointed uh, prophet of the time, his name was Elijah. And he goes to them, he's like, hey, you guys got to repent. You guys got to switch up. You got to repent. God's not happy. You got to make sure that God is the focus. And basically, King Ahab doesn't listen to him and is seduced by Jezebel. And as a result, he's pulled out of his purpose of God. He's pulled out of because he is distracted. So when we say Jezebel, it's actually referring to the spirit of Jezebel, which is anything that takes your focus off of God and puts it something onto something else. Anything that takes your focus off of God and places it on something else. Now in the Old Testament, something you need to know, and I only literally discovered it this week as I was studying uh, but uh, I, I grew up with this mentality in the Old Testament. Whenever you read about a, a fake idol coming in or, or, or a fake God coming in and the Israelites, you know, starting to worship that God, I always just assumed that they just dropped God, like Yahweh God, just, all right, we're done with you. We're just going to pick this God up and start doing, like, praising and following them. But that's actually not the case of what happened. 
See, what used to happen in the Old Testament, instead of just dropping God in Yahweh, what they would do is that they would move over God and they would bring up this false idol, this false God, and start worshiping alongside of God. So they wouldn't drop him, they would just move him over. And so what took place in the, in the, in the age of King Ahab and, and Queen Jezebel is that you had Yahweh and you had Baal. And so the culture began to uh, be built in, the, in the, the country, sorry, the nation of Israel. And uh, what took place is that they were like, hey, if you need to on Tuesday worship Yahweh to get through, that is awesome. We're going to do that. But on Wednesday, if you need to worship Baal and pray to him to get what you need from him, that's cool too. You do whatever you feel you need to, to do what you need to to get done what you need to, right? That was the mentality in the church, sorry, in Israel at that time. But let me put it in context, right, in the spirit of Jezebel for how we can understand it. Go to church on Sunday, chase the income on Monday. Chase the girl, the guy on Friday, but I'll follow God on Sunday. See, the spirit of Jezebel isn't just something they face, it's something we all face on a daily basis. It's anything that takes your eyes off God and places them on something else. It's anything that makes you go, cool, I'm going to talk like a Christian, but I'm not going to walk like a Christian. It's anything that allows you to go, cool, I'm going to speak Christianese, but I'm not going to live how God designed me to live. If we're honest, we're all guilty of this. Me and you both, we're all guilty of the spirit of Jezebel where we take our eyes off of God and we put it onto something else. Whether it's that new job, whether it's that relationship, whether it's a social standing, whatever it may be, we're all guilty of that. And what Jesus is addressing in the Thyatiras is going, hey, guys, the spirit of Jezebel, hey, I'm not happy with it. He's going, hey, guys, come on. I deserve your attention. Your attention should be on me. And we had this church and this person in the church that was saying, hey, it's okay to be a part of these guilds in order for you to earn an income. It's okay for you to worship these gods or eat these foods or do these things because you go to church on Sunday and that makes it okay. But God is going, no, no, no. It's not about going to church on Sunday. It's about living a life with me each and every single day. Every single day. Spirit of Jezebel. So we all face it, and God is addressing this, not only in them, but in us as well. For me, uh, a, a prime example of this, to be honest, is uh, when I was a lot younger, actually in year six, right? Um, and so for those who don't know, my family uh, planted a church in Canberra, and uh, they're doing a great job, Fusion City Church. Uh, I love them so much, and they're doing amazing things. But we moved over there when I was in year six, at the, start, uh, at the end of year six, sorry. Pardon me. Um, and uh, we moved over there, and we knew no one in Canberra. We literally knew no one, like not a single soul, not a single person. My parents uh, were so incredibly faithful, and they just said, we felt like God called us, and so that's where we're going, and uh, they're so amazing with that. But for me, as a young person with immaturity in my life, I didn't fully understand that. And my walk with God wasn't developed enough to the point where I understood that fully. And so part of our move over there looked like me getting really mad at my parents and kind of mad at God. And uh, when we got there, uh, there was a bunch of, uh, like, uh, down, like I was applied to a bunch of schools, and all of a sudden, I didn't get into any of those schools. And my parents found me in a spot where my, both my siblings were at the same school, at a private school. And for me, they're like, cool, we're just going to send you to this school, this public school, just one off, and uh, just for this term, and then we'll get you a next, next term at uh, this other school your siblings are at. I was like, cool, all right. And at this point, I'm still immature. I'm still uh, wrestling with frustration and anger towards my parents and towards God for moving me away from my friends, not understanding the pressure that my parents would be under at that stage, uh, which I've apologized for profusely to them, by the way. But 
for me, what ended up happening is I went to this new school and I stood, stepped in and there was a culture there. And, and because I knew no one, because I had no friends, I had such a desire to fit into the culture that I ended up adopting the culture. And so from the early age of year six, right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, candid and honest. I, I, my, all of a sudden, from someone who never used to swear, I used to swear all the time. From someone who, who never used to talk back to my parents, man, I was talking back to my parents a lot. For someone who, who had never been exposed to anything, all of a sudden, at, in year six, right? This is, and this is like more than, I think this is 12 years ago at this point. I think my math is correct on that. Um, I was heavily addicted to pornography based on the culture that was set in that school. In year six, 12 years ago, that was the culture. And because I desired to fit in so much, I ended up adopting the culture that was around me. But what took place is that it ate me up inside and it killed my family as well. Because for me, I was going to church on Sunday. We planted a church. I was there every single day, set up, packed down, pack in the van, pack out the van. You know, I was part of the worship team. I was part of the kids ministry team. I was part of every single team because there was only five of us. So <laughs> I was part of every team. And I was at church every single Sunday. And my family were God believers. And guess what? I still believed in God. But I had adopted a culture that said it was okay for me to fit in with the world. Where Jesus says, no, no, I haven't called you to fit in. I've called you to stand out. And what he's saying to this church is, church, I haven't called you to fit in. I've called you to stand out. Why are you looking the same as the world? I've called you to look different than the world. And what he's saying to us this morning is, hey, church, I haven't called you to fit in. I've called you to stand out. This church was doing the same thing that the culture around them was doing. That's not how God, God has called us to be a light to the world, salt to the earth to be different so that when people look at you, they're like, man, there's something different about you. If you're doing the exact same thing as the culture around you, no one's going to be looking at you going, there's something different about you. No, no, you're looking the exact same as them. But if we want to be evangelists, if we want to minister God's love and His Word, we got to look different. we got to walk different. And for me and my story, there came a point in time and when I just remember God arresting me. I just remember God having a moment Literally, I remember so clearly, it was actually, it was on a Sunday at church. And my dad was preaching and I don't even know, I can't even remember what he was preaching about. To be honest, it might not have anything to do with my response. But I just remember God spoke so clearly to me. And he's like, Dan, when are you going to get real? Dan, when are you going to get honest about what's going on? And at that point, I literally fell to my knees. I remember just bawling my eyes out because I knew the brokenness that was inside of me because I had adopted a culture that was not a heavenly culture. And I was saying one thing but living another way. And God, in that moment, addressed me and corrected me. But I had a choice. In that moment, when God addressed me and corrected me, was I going to stand up and be the same? Or was I going to stand up and live differently? Because let me tell you this, church, and you know this, correcting never feels good. I don't know a single person who's like, yeah, I love being corrected. Yeah, it's the best. It's like, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going to go get corrected. <laughs> no one ever does that. <laughs> if you do let us know, we'll all be there. Don't worry, we'll all be there to help you out. <laughs> 
No one loves to get corrected because it stings a bit, am I right? It stings a little bit. It hurts a little bit. But reality is, is that when a surgeon operates on an area that needs help, he's more concerned about getting you healthy than the pain you're in right now. And whenever, I don't know if you've, if you've I, I have this weird obsession that I actually like to like watch like ER and OR type things, you know, on YouTube, you know, you go down a deep, dark rabbit hole of YouTube and find all the, and like how to do it, like a knee operation. And I'm like, ooh, let's watch this, you know. It's weird, I know, pray for me, but you, you see them go in and when they go in, right, can I just say, surgeons are not gentle, I've seen, and they're like banging things and they're moving things and they're having to use force. Why? Not because they're trying to hurt the person, because they're trying to help the person. And if that's true for a surgeon, how much more true for the surgeon who does work on our heart and in our life, who does correct things on a daily basis. Am I right, church? Doesn't feel nice when he corrects us, but we have two choices. Are we going to respond honestly and go, yes, that is me, God. Your correction does apply to me. Or are we going to say, yes, but. Or are we going to say, but I saw them doing it? Or are we going to say, God, you should correct them? Or are we going to complain? What is our response going to be? Because it will determine if we continue to grow or not. If God is addressing you on something, if we don't respond honestly, we're not going to be able to grow and get healing in that area. And so really quickly in my time left, I just want to give you the three points, uh, the three benefits, sorry, to having an honest faith. It's when Jesus corrects you to having an honest faith. And that point number one is this, change is possible. Everyone say change. See, when you have an honest faith, change is possible. See, the start of any rehabilitation is always to admit that you need rehabilitation. The start of any help is always to admit that you do need help, that there is an issue and that there is a problem. For me, in my story, I had to go to my parents and be like, you know what, mom and dad, I need help right now. I am not doing it. I'm not cutting it by myself. I need help. See, change is possible when we have an honest faith. Because Jesus' correction, guess what? It's never a condemnation. It's always an invitation to change. Whenever Jesus corrects something in your life, it's never, ever, ever a condemnation. No, if you have a condemnation, that is a lie of the enemy that is trying to convince you not to listen to the correction, right? But Jesus, whenever he corrects, he goes, hey, it's about change. It's an invitation to change. We see it in the scripture. He says, hey, if you repent of your ways, it's all good. Do you know what repentance means? It actually means to agree with God and then as a result, change your ways. You know, true repentance kind of couldn't have taken place unless there's change that happens. It's not just a sorry. Repentance isn't a sorry. Repentance is a changed life based on the fact that you agree with what God is pointing out in your life. Can I just speak to my generation really quick? Is this, don't let your pride, anyone who's a millennial or around that age, come on, don't let your pride stop you from listening to the correction and as a result, having an honest response to the change that you need to do. Come on, we have a, we have a response for some reason in our generation where we put walls up as soon as someone tries to speak into our life. No, young people, if you would have humility, God would be able to use you more because all of a sudden you'd be able to change things in your life that need a change in order for you to be more effective with God, yeah? So come on, when, a, when someone comes to you and addresses something new, don't put walls up, but rather actually welcome it into your life. Everyone say, change for me. Number two, when we have an honest faith, unity is possible. In my story, I was actually causing division in my family. As we see with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, there was division in the kingdom because there was two visions that they were chasing after. 
And for me, when I wasn't being honest in my story, in my family, there was division. I was causing tension based on the fact that I wasn't getting honest with God and where I was at. But as soon as I did, all of a sudden the fruits of the Spirit started to flow, which I love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which are all things that help with unity. Unity of people, God has always been about unity. The Trinity, unity, where two or three are gathered, unity. In the in book of Acts, right, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills up the disciples, guess what? They were all gathered together. God has always been about unity, church. Come on, don't let the enemy get inside your friendships or your connect group or your work colleague relationships. No, no, the God of, that we serve is actually all about unity. And when we get honest, unity happens, right? I believe one of the biggest ways uh, that enemy has tried to take out the church is when corrections come, people respond badly, and as a result, division is caused. Come on, rather, let's go, you know, when Jesus corrects us, we're going to look at it as an invitation to change, and as a result, an invitation to build unity as well. It's change and unity. And number three, as the band comes up. Or really quickly, sorry, before I move on to unity, just really quick, unity actually starts with you, like the letter U but also you, the person. Unity never starts with someone else. <laughs> they should be building unity. Well, in that moment, you're causing division. Come on, unity starts with you. So when you have an honest faith that leads to change, it makes unity possible as well. And number three is this. It makes worship possible. You know when you get honest, your worship becomes real and extravagant? When we're just going to church on Sunday and living a different way Monday through Friday through Saturday, when we're chasing the girl, the guy, when we're chasing the income and the money, when we're not loving our family, when we're not doing the things that God has asked us to do, and we come to church on Sunday, you know our worship is not true worship? You know worship can only be worship when you recognize that you need a God who gives you grace. When you get honest enough to be like, man, I need Jesus right now. I need Jesus. Worship is only possible when you have honest faith, when you've welcomed the invitation to change, build unity, and as a result, you get to stand here and go, God, I know what I've done. I know how broken I am, but so good are you, Lord Jesus, that you saved me. Not based on my own works, but based on your works. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a chance to practice this. Because I want us as a church, we've got to realize that we've got to get real before God. We gotta get real before God. We gotta get honest before Him. Come on, whenever there's correction, we have a choice in that moment. How are we gonna respond honestly or are we gonna point the finger? But if we respond honestly, man, change is possible. It's an invitation. Come on, come with me on this journey. Hey, this is wrong, but I can get you here. Let's address it. Unity is possible. But worship, worship is possible too. It says this in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your bodies as a living sacrifice is true and proper worship. True and proper worship. I wonder if you can stand with me this morning, guys. In just a moment, we're going to sing... I want to point you to a character in the Bible. His name is David. And he's called a man after God's own heart. And if, there's, if you know anything about David, you might know the story of David and Goliath, which sounds like a great story. But David was also 
had a lot of mistakes recorded in the Bible. Made a lot of mistakes. He's much like you and me. We like constantly making mistakes. That's him. And yet he still called a man after God's own heart. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why? It's not because of what he did, but it's rather based on how he responded where correction came his way. And there's so many accounts we see David worshiping passionately, extravagantly, and with a lot of zeal because he got honest before God. And when correction came, he was like, God, you're so right. Oh my goodness, God, I'm so sorry, but I'm so thankful that your grace covers me and I will lift up your name. I don't want to point to me. I want to point to you because when we get honest, we realize that worship has nothing to do with me and you. It's got nothing to do with us. It's all about Him. It doesn't matter what song they play. It doesn't matter if it's too loud. It doesn't matter whatever is going on because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.